0: Welcome to Episode 1 of the Dason Digest. I'm Libby Dudz-Ashley. I'm the Operations Director for Dayson, and we are so excited to have you joining us on this new endeavor that we're launching this week. Episode 1 is being published the week ending November 20th of 2020. This has been an important week because we're also celebrating Worldwide Antibiotic Awareness Week and we are so excited to launch our new audio offering as part of our celebration and observance of Antibiotic Awareness Week throughout the world. We hope you're enjoying the other offerings that Dason is putting out on a daily basis for the entire celebration of Antibiotic Awareness Week. So for our first audio offering, I'm delighted to be joined today by the medical director for Dason, Schaefer Spires. Hi, Schaefer.
1: Hey, Libby. Pretty excited to join you on this.
0: Well, I give full credit to my colleagues, the DAISON liaisons, so I think they probably don't need introduction, but as you all know, uh, we have a fabulous team consisting of April Dyer, Travis Jones, Angelina Davis, and Melissa Johnson, and this was actually born through lots of conversations that we've had about offerings we'd like to provide to the DAISON sites, and I'll be honest, what it started as is we wanted to offer a journal club, but we had trouble finding the time that was going to be good for everyone to participate, so we're hoping by giving you these brief audio offerings, you'll be able to participate when it's convenient for you, but still hear about some of the latest literature. For our first episode, we are going to address a question that I know is really a burning question for many of the DSON sites. And it is, what is the optimal treatment for a pathogen where we suspect it is an ESBL producer? Now, I know that we have some new data and we are excited to share with you the results of a recent publication by Henderson and colleagues entitled Association Between Minimum Inhibitory Concentration, Beta Lactamase Genes and Mortality for Patients Treated with Piperacillin-Tazobactam or Meropenem from the Merino study. This was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases online on October 27th of 2020. Schaefer, before we get into the new data though, do you mind reminding everybody about the big findings from Merino and the impact it had on patient care?
1: yes absolutely and there is also for everyone's notification here travis jones wrote a newsletter in october 2018 covering the merino trial but in brief this is a randomized clinical trial a pragmatic trial meaning they did it in in real world settings and it was a non-inferiority trial it was in nine different countries very large trial got almost 400 patients enrolled, and they looked at isolates of E. coli and Klebsiella pneumonia that are septraxone resistant. And they made sure that as determined by the clinical micro labs on the sites at the hospitals, that each were susceptible to piperacillin-tazobactam or meropenem. And then they randomized it to receive either of those. Piperacillin-tazobactam, 4 grams Q6 hours, or the Meropenem, 1 gram Q8 hours, and what they ultimately found was the mortality, the 30-day mortality, was 12.3 percent in the piperacillin-tazobactam, and, and that was higher than the Meropenem group at 3.7 percent, and so the piperacillin and group did not meet the non-inferiority margin, and this trial, while it is the gold standard, essentially, for clinical practice here, and this is kind of what set the stage for all of us being concerned with treating an ESBL-producing infection or bloodstream infection with anything other than a carbapenem. There were still a lot of discussion and some controversy after this trial.
0: So, I'm assuming the reason we're talking about the new paper is it sheds some light on that. One thing to slightly introduce is this concept, though, and I I want your thoughts on, you know, in 2010, the CLSI changed the breakpoints. To hopefully better indicate that even for ESBL producers, the new susceptibility breakpoints for Piptaza were supposed to indicate that Piptazo was safe to use in those patients. I know that it took a while for all facilities to fully implement those. Do you think that um, weighed a little bit on those results? And do the new findings help us answer that question in any way?
1: That's a good point. It's not an easy question to answer, really. They tried to answer it in the trial originally published or they, they tried to associate elevated MICs to piperacillin and with mortality and, and they, they did not. What they were able to do in this trial is about 80% of the isolates were sent to the, the primary research site, the clinical, uh, I'm sorry, not the clinical, but the microbiology lab there. And they were able to use Broth microdilution, which is essentially the gold standard for determining antibiotic susceptibility or MIC testing, and, and this new publication, which is as a analysis of these isolates, show that several of these isolates that originally were thought to be sensitive to piperacillin-tazobactam in the trial were actually not, according to the broth microdilution. And so when they actually took these patients out and then redid the analysis again, they found that the mortality difference between the two groups was greatly attenuated or may have even met non-inferior margin, but they didn't necessarily comment on that. Now, they, they also were able to show there was an association with mortality and different genes that produce ESBLs. And so they did whole genome sequencing on all of these isolates as well, and they found that particular genes, specifically OXA-A1, for instance, was found to be associated with increased mortality, and these are also obviously associated with increased MICs to and tazobactam And so what this trial suggests is one. Maybe just because it's ceftraxone resistant doesn't necessarily mean that it won't respond to piperacillin-tazobactam, but it does mean that most clinical labs, may the lab testing may not be as reliable for detecting piperacillin-tazobactam resistance as we once thought or hoped. And so therefore, the conclusion still, at least by the authors, still remains, it's probably safer to keep or or to use carbapenems or meropenem for these patients that are found to be Ceftrax and resistant. But as you suggested, Libby, there is still some controversy uh, in this area.
0: So, Schaefer, I know this, you know, so it's interesting. So maybe these isolates, more of them in the Merino trial were actually truly resistant and shouldn't have been reported. I think we'll probably never know if that had to do with a laboratory lag and implementing the new breakpoints. But from the standpoint of clinical practice, what do you think people are doing out there? Do you, do you think outside of our network, this is an answered question and everyone is, if they have a patient on piptazo or cefepime and it comes back cefraxone resistant, are they switching away over to a carbapenem or is clinical? response weighing heavier on that what, what do you think you're seeing out there is there any information to help guide those decisions
1: well that that is, I think that is the question and you know we, we see this a lot in, in clinical practice you, you know somebody comes in with gram negative sepsis and you know it takes a, a day or two to figure out which isolates causing it and then another day to find out what the susceptibility profile that that isolate is. And so you find yourself on hospital day three or four before you even realize that it's the ceftriaxone resistant uh, gram-negative here in the bloodstream. And then you're kind of faced with this trial data that suggests, well, my patient will do better if they get a, a carbapenem. And I think in, in, in real-world practice, we're not, that, that, was, that does not always happen. A lot of times patients get better. They they. If they are in shock, they come out of shock, or they get moved out of the ICU and are sitting there eating their breakfast. And and you, a lot of clinicians don't always feel obligated to switch them at that point, even if they're receiving cefepime. And there was a an abstract published this past ID week. The authors are out of uh, Gainesville, Florida, at Shands Hospital. Uh, senior author is Katie Desir. Where they reviewed three years of uh, uh ESBL ESBL-producing Enterobacteriaceae isolates from the bloodstream. This is a retrospective chart review. What they found was that there were still a lot of patients uh, that were not switched at that point to a carbapenem, and and part of it, uh, some of these patients were were actually in the 2016 and 17, so before the Mariner trial, and some of them were actually active mariner trial was published. But regardless, they looked at outcomes, clinical outcomes, including in hospital mortality, clinical cure, microbiologic cure, and recurrence. And they did not find any difference in any of these outcomes between the groups where they did switch them to a carbapenem compared to the groups, they did not switch them to a carbapenem and left them on cefepime or piperacillin-tazobactam. And so while this is, is not the same scientific rigor as a randomized clinical trial, as the Merino trial was, it still, I think in a lot of our minds, kind of sits out there with this, keeps this question out there. Well, if my patient got better on cefepime, even though resist, their, their isolate is resistant to ceftriaxone, does that necessarily mean I've got to c- complete the, the clinical cor- the treatment course with the carbapenem? And, and, and quite frankly, I'm not sure, but what the MARINA trial and the sub-analysis suggests to me that the safer thing to do is to use the carbapenem. We also have the uh, ID Society or IDCA practice guidance that just came out uh, a few months ago and, this was uh, addressed in a recent newsletter written by Travis Jones. But if if you guys have not seen this particular guidance, I highly recommend going to check it out on the IDSA website because they they have a, It's a very usable format where you can click down the ESBL uh, uh, guidance tab and it opens up to specific question, patient questions. And one of the specific questions I think that Libby we ought to address is is do you have to switch uh, to a carbapenem in those patients who who have a, a cystitis secondary to an ESBL-producing gram-negative? And I think most of us recognize that most of these gram-negative isolates and, and even ESBL producers are found in the urine. And when the infection is a simple cystitis, it, the overwhelming Consensus here is that you do not have to switch them to a carbapenem just because they're ESBL producer, and in fact, you probably can use clinical improvement as uh, as a judge as to whether or not this particular bacteria that you have them on is working. And in this, in the in the IDSA guidance, they suggest that we use nitrofurantoin or trim sulfa for the preferred options for uncomplicated cystitis. And then you know, there's there's this uncomplicated cystitis and then there's everything in between that and and the most invasive meaning of bloodstream infection so there's uh, pyelonephritis and other uh, extra urinary infections and they go on to comment in the guidance that for these extra urinary infections and pyelonephritis that it's probably safer to use a carbapenem including urtapenem and meropenem But also, ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, or trim sulfa are also potential options in these infections.
0: Thanks, Schaefer. So some new interesting data. I think just to try to summarize everything, it sounds like, one, the jury is still out on this question about do all patients really need to be switched. But based on the one large randomized trial we have, the Merino study, it seems that, especially for bloodstream infections, carbapenems are the safest option right now. There is interesting data from the new analysis that was published by Henderson and colleagues in clinical infectious diseases in October um, that certainly show there might be a reason to suspect that certain strains are more likely to result in clinical failure, but still not enough information for us to change those, our interpretation of the Merino trial in a whole. But the group at Shands shows us that still doing very close monitoring of patients and assessing their clinical response to therapy is probably one of the most important metrics we have in determining optimal treatment for our patients. And in that study, seeing that for patients where an ASBL was suspected, but for whatever reason, and again, like you said, we don't know, it could be clinical response, it could be other mitigating factors, maybe even just provider preference. There didn't seem to be a difference in many of the outcomes that were looked at. Although it is a retrospective study, doesn't carry the same weight likely as Marino, but it certainly gives something to help shed more light on this decision that I know we get questions from our sites all the time. So uh, interesting new findings.
1: Absolutely. yeah, I think you uh, summarized it perfectly, and it's so it can be frustrating. I, I know because we all just kind of want one answer and want all these patients to kind of fit in perfectly with uh, an algorithm that we can develop. And unfortunately, even now, after this extensive amount of study, uh, I don't know that we can do that.
0: Well, we will keep reviewing the literature, and we will work to keep our members informed. And one of the ways we'll do that is right here through this Dayson Digest. So, Schaefer, thank you for being willing to participate in our very first episode.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, this is fun. I look forward to several more.
0: Yes. So to our listeners, we plan again to have these every other week. Um, We will be posting them and sending email communications to let you know they're there. It'll include the links to the articles that we're going to discuss. If you have ideas for the digest, please reach out to your pharmacist liaison or to Schaefer himself and let us know what you're thinking. We want this to be useful and helpful to everyone. We hope you've enjoyed it again. Happy antibiotic awareness week, 2020. Uh, We hope, you are able to participate in many of the offerings that are out there through DASON and others to help celebrate Evonica Awareness Week. Have a great day.
1: Have a good day.